Hello, this is Ian Wolf, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter rewards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I am Ian Wolfe. On this edition, biohacking baby formula. But first up, here's the news. Electrically augmented flavour. Salty flavours without any salt for people with high blood pressure who need to avoid the sodium in salty food. Augmented reality has been mainly about adding or removing visual information from your perceptions of the world. Now with augmented gustation, you can subtract or add to your sense of taste. From the Human Augmentation Lab of Meiji University in Tokyo comes the electric fork, chopstick and cups that dial up or down a virtual salty flavour when there isn't any salt added or when you've added too much salt for your taste with just a small, painless zap. In Japan, the traditional diet doesn't make people fat, but it does contain a lot of salt. Romi Nakamura discovered the electric spice while investigating controlling computers with her tongue. She discovered cathodal food augmentation, or as her paper calls it, Augmented gustation using electricity. A direct current inhibits the tongue's ability to taste salt and sour flavours. And immediately after the current is switched off, your sense of saltiness, sourness and bitterness is vastly enhanced. The forks have been designed and produced en masse to be used in no-salt restaurants that are popping up in various districts of Tokyo for a few days at a time. The forks have three levels of intensity, for different degrees of flavour inhibition, which can activate three levels of flavour enhancements after the current is switched off. The restaurants offered a saltless five-course meal, consisting of a salad, pork cutlets, fried rice, meatloaf and cake. Hiromi has been eating electricity for four years, but hasn't yet found a way to inhibit or amplify sweetness. In her electric cups, she can make any drink feel like it's been carbonated by switching on the current. If two people drink from the same electrified cup with special straws, the person holding the cup completes the circuit by touching the other drinker's hand, communicating the fizziness of the drink. Ah. The Global Ionics Company is working on a similar tongue-zapping technology in America. Back in 2003, Haru Iwata of the University of Tsukuba in Japan developed a food simulator that recorded and played back the sound, force and flavours of different foods. 
The force required to bite the food was recorded with a thin film force sensor in the subject's mouth. Sensors made from lipid and polymer membranes measured the chemicals contributing to the taste of the food. And finally, a microphone recorded the sounds produced in the jawbone while you were chewing. These recordings were played back in the food simulator in your mouth. A mechanism covered with rubber and cloth resisted your bite in the same way as the original food. A thin tube squirts a mixture of flavourings onto your tongue, so it was a lot messier than electric virtual flavour. The chemicals stimulate the five basic taste sensations sweet, sour, bitter, salty and umami, the savoury taste of monosodium glutamate. A tiny speaker plays back the sound of a chewing jawbone in your ear. Haru successfully created the virtual mouthfeel of chewing cheese, crackers, confectionery and Japanese snacks. Apparently it's quite convincing, as long as you don't try to swallow. Back in current day Tokyo, Haremi wants to design and record the electrical patterns of virtual flavours to files that you would share online to a service she envisions as Taste Cloud. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Meow Ludo is founder of the biohacking scene in Australia five years ago. Out of that, he co-founded the Biofoundry, which in turn enabled Bionascent, a startup working out of the biofoundry on which Meow is an advisor. I began by asking Meow, how did he get here? And for him, what is it all about? I studied at UNSW. I did my undergraduate in genetics. And then I did two honours projects that were vaguely related to microfluidics and point of care diagnostics because I, I felt I did, like I didn't want to be restrained into molecular biology and it was really interesting commercial applications of technology. Blue Sky Research is great, but it's, it's I, I'm really interested in getting things that I, I study and invent into people's homes and, and out changing the world rather than just making papers. And I think Avan Gupta from Indie Bio said it best. He quoted someone else, I think. Papers don't solve problems. And then... <laughs> This is, this is something which really hit home with me because it's like, it's all well and good like to invent a cure for cancer, but if no one gets it, what's the point? So I went from university. I, I actually failed both those honors projects, got a bit disillusioned with it. And then about halfway through my degree, so in, concurrently, I, I started the biohacking movement in Australia. Started having regular meetings, meeting with other people who were also interested in this stuff. And we that culminated in Biofoundry and Biofoundry is Australia's first open access molecular biology lab. We've had many hurdles to overcome to get there and, and we've been around for a little while now we're doing a project by appointment and through this we've also seen another biohack group start up by acquisitive in melbourne and the way i see biohacking in australia is there's a lot of unemployed molecular biologists it's very different than san francisco where there's a lot of employed molecular biologists so people going to the biohack spaces there generally have day jobs where they're actually doing this for real over here most of the molecular biologists and hackers that come along to the Biofoundry and Biohack meetings don't have jobs. So it's kind of assumed that 
people working on projects there, if they come up with something cool, they're probably going to want to commercialize it, which is quite different to the scene over in San Francisco. So we came up with an idea at BioFoundry and, and it just launched at IndieBio. So IndieBio is an accelerator. And what this means is it takes fledgling research, cool ideas or prototypes, gives them a quarter of a million US dollars and says you have four months to get this product to market, which is crazy for a biology or a biotech idea. If you take an app or something like that, you can get it to market in four months. You can just work harder. But if you're making biotech lettuce, it takes 16 weeks to grow. That's four months. You get one shot. (laughs) That's it. You, you, You stuff up and you can't go back and do it again. So you have to invent really clever ways of bringing your project to market more quickly. And a really good way to do that is by having a lot of money. It enables you to do things like run a whole lot of experiments in parallel. So you can be testing things all the way along. It means that you can be contracting in specialists to help you. It means you have a lot of money to do things like instead of getting a gene from the environment and bringing it in and then doing a long lengthy process to use genetic technologies to put it into a plant, you can just get the genes synthesized, which is a lot more expensive but it can just be shipped to you in a little container and then you can put it straight into the plant. And and this is how you can get a biotech idea from like idea or conception through to market in four months as you chuck a quarter of a million dollars at it. And it's working. We can see it. Yeah, so it's very exciting. So the project I went over with is Bionascent. Bionascent is developing an infant formula based on breast milk rather than on cow's milk. There's a number of reasons why this is really great, but it, it, it basically stems from infant formula not being really nutritionally matched to in infants' needs. Now, there's a whole heap of things that, that come out of this. So the, the biggest ones would be that there's a whole heap of bioactive molecules inside of mother's breast milk that is never going to be in an infant formula. One of the big things we're looking at is cultivating good microflora within an infant. And in the ages of zero to six months, if an infant is formula fed, by the age of 10, they score poorer across every single metric you can give to them. Sometimes not significantly so, but still scores lower, which when you take a look at all these categories, and it's like IQ, visuospatial awareness, things like this, that that's pretty significant. And if you think about where are the infants being fed formula? It's all the way across the world, often in developing countries and things like this. But sometimes, like in China, there's huge ad campaigns to say that it's actually better for your baby and people are buying into this. So we want to make the most nutritionally complete formula they can have. One of the things we're looking at is amino acid profiles. So you might look at protein between an infant formula and breast milk. And you might look at the, the average protein levels and, and say, okay, well, it looks like they're like roughly the same. Generally, infant formula is twice as high. But if you look at the actual amino acids in there, they're wildly different. And a babies can't synthesize the same amino acids that adults can. The, the way the infant's digestion works is that if you give them infant formula, cow's milk doesn't get broken down the same way. So you get different types of flocculations. So basically, the milk curdles in different ways that makes the protein that is there less available. You have problems with iron take up, DHA, which is an omega fatty acid that is important in brain development. Now, some of these formulas are already looking at that. But then there's all these other things that they haven't looked into at all, which is things like lactoferrin, which regulates iron levels. Now, this is really important. So a baby requires a lot of iron. Um, It has about six months reserves in its system when it's born. It needs to build up those reserves for later development. Now, just putting iron into the baby formula doesn't always work because even though there's more iron there... Without the lactoferrin, it's available to different bacteria and it can mess up their microbiome. 
And this is it. We, we know the microbiome, the, the uh, microbiology of the gut is a hugely important factor in things like developing an immune system. And also the, the, the health of the baby. We know things, microbiomes in adults can cause things like anorexia and potentially a whole range of things like schizophrenia and, and all these other things. So we want to make sure that microbiome is as healthy for the baby as possible. And lactoferrin is a, is a protein that binds the iron so it's not available to the other bacteria, which means that you only cultivate, naturally you would only cultivate the bacteria you are interested in. And we know that breast milk has a lot of lactose in it, you know, and, and all milks have a lot of lactose in them and that's to cultivate lactobacillus. The, the lactoferrin allows it to only be available to the bacteria that it wants, but also um, can be taken up, uh, bind to the iron and then allow the iron to be taken up by the baby. And that's where you really want it. And then you have things like osteopontin and uh, a range of other bioactives that all work to build an immune system for the baby. Now, the milk won't have immunoglobins in it because of various reasons, which is broadly, we can't make a universal IgA for all the babies and then there would be additional regulatory problems. Maybe eventually down the track, we'd love to have it in there. But if we can provide the most nutritionally complete infant formula, we hope that if a woman can't breastfeed her baby or a family can't breast breastfeed their baby, that this is the best alternative. And that's the most important thing is that we're not trying to replace breast milk. We're trying to give the best alternative possible. There's a whole range of reasons why someone might want to, might not be able to breastfeed their baby. It might be, um, you know, medical reasons. It might be lifestyle reasons. A lot of mothers have to go back before they'd like to, to the workforce. And not all mothers want to uh, breastfeed their babies until they're three, or they might want to mix, mix it up. And more than 60% of mothers will breastfeed their baby at some point. And if that's the case, we want to make sure that they have that, they're available for them. So if the protein's not coming from cow's milk, mm -hmm. how are you getting these proteins from human milk into the formula? I'm glad you asked that question. That's a very good one. So the way that we, the way this pro, this project was was designed was we looked at what what proteins were what what proteins are being generated by the factory farming industry because we don't really like that and we think if you can if you can do this using biotechnology, it's a much better way of doing it. So we synthesized the genes, which is a really interesting thing in itself. Your DNA has nucleotides on it. It's basically made. It's like a twisted ladder. And each of the, the rungs of the ladder has a letter associated with it. That's how we think about it. The gene is basically a section of that ladder that codes for a protein. And it does that by using some machinery with, within the cell to transcribe and translate that into what we call a protein. Proteins that do jobs are generally called enzymes, but not always. And we use enzymes for all sorts of things. We have dishwashing detergents and things, and proteins make up things like, well, our entire body is made of proteins, our hair, our nails. And the hair on our nails are made by the same protein, keratin. Thanks to all the research that universities have done, there's a worldwide repository where we can just query for the genes that we want. So I go onto GenBank and I say, I want to search for the human alpha-lactalbumin gene. Now I know that alpha-lactalbumin for my Wikipedia search is the, the gene I'm looking for or the protein I'm looking for. And then I can find the gene associated with it. Once I find it, I can literally download a series of G's, T's, C's and A's, like just in a text file. Then I can send that file off to a gene synthesis company and from that information, they can push print and send me a little test tube filled with the genes I'm looking for. When I get those genes, they, they come freeze-dried. They're actually so small, you can't even see them. They're invisible inside the test tube. I get something around a few nanograms, but that for me, that's heaps. If it's exactly the gene I want and only the gene I want, that's a huge amount. It could be billions of copies. Now, from there... We add water to the test tube and that allows the DNA to be free floating. 
we used an open source mother-daughter cloning system. And this basically means that we've got a blank plasmid. And a plasmid is a circular piece of DNA. And we use this because it allows us to easily insert it inside a bacteria or a yeast. And it works like, like an add-on. So you can think about it like an add-on for a browser or something like that. You can just download this little thing that, that can stay in there for a while or it could be taken out. So the plasmid would contain an origin of replication that allows us to grow more of the plasmid once it's in there. It will generally contain an antibiotic resistance gene that allows us to, once the plasmid has been put into the bacteria, us to select the bacteria that have taken up our gene of interest. And in this case, that gene of interest is in alpha-lact albumin. So we've got the plasmid, we've got the section of DNA, we use a thing called a restriction enzyme, which is molecular tweezers or cutters, and they snip the DNA. That turns the circle into a straight piece of DNA. Then we put our gene of interest in there, and then we put some genetic glue called a ligase in there. And then it's not going to work every time, but using the antibiotic selection, we can find the ones that, that have it. Then we, we just use a really simple genetic transformation where we heat shock what's called competent cells. So competent cells have had the phospholipid membrane, the shell of the cell basically eroded away and they rebuild it really quickly, but we buy them frozen and they've had their chemi the, the phospholipids, the fats from around the cell dissolved away and then quickly frozen. Now we take it out and then we, ex we basically shock them. We put them in, in some cold water while we do some, while we put all the plasmids and stuff in. Then we put them onto a heat block and, heat them at 42 degrees for 10 seconds and then we chuck them back into the cold water what this does is it tricks the cell a little bit and it stretches and then contracts what it does is transient holes appear in the membrane and they'll take up some of the dna once we've done that we can they're very very sensitive as you can imagine they've got you know had a lot of damage done to them really quickly but we can plate them onto some very nice regenerative medium and make them really happy and then grow them on this antibiotic selective media, which would let only the ones that have taken up our gene start growing. So once they start doing that, if they've, if they survive all this, which they did, which is fantastic, they'll be growing on this plate from there. It's a bit complicated from there. If that was <laughs> from, from there, we, we, we grow them depending on how we've designed our plasma and things like that, we might bust the cells open or we might check the medium that they've been growing in on a thing called a protein gel. And that's a way for us to look at all the proteins inside the cell. And as we run it down a piece of agarose, which is made is just a jelly with some electricity running through it, we can see bands moving down. Those bands represent proteins of different sizes. And we know already what the weight of the alpha light albumin is because we've got that from the Wikipedia page and the research that's been done. We, we have a vague idea of what it should be. So we put a dye across the gel and if there's a big blue band in exactly where we think it should be, then it's very, very likely it's ours. From there, we, we could potentially do use an antibody to that to pull it out to confirm that it is 100% that or we can put it through a mass spectrometer and look at the composition and that would be give us more evidence to say it's, it's what it's what we're after and once it is what you're after are you growing it in yeast or bacteria how are you going to mass produce it to put it into formula so we're ex we're actually at the moment exploring a range of different options for that. For alpha-lactalbumin, we might use one. For the other proteins, we might use another. And this actually comes in because to make an active enzyme, we need to make sure that the glycosylation patterns are, are right. And that's basically, once you get your protein, there's some additional modifications that can happen to make it really active um, or make it even active at all. And in that case, there's certain types of bacteria, there's certain types of yeast. Pasha pastoris is one. 
it has to be done experimentally though. And that's the stage that we're at now. The other thing is how much protein does it produce? How do you, could we produce enough that it's commercially viable? To make it commercially viable, you have to be able to grow enough of it at the right cost. So we're in that stage at the moment now of scaling up. It's all well and good to grow protein in a test tube, but if you can't make 300 liters or 300 kilos of it, and that's very expensive. And that's where it's great to have this funding from Indie Bio because we can do things like we want to grow 300 liters of this and see under what conditions it can produce the amounts we, we need. The Australian government would do very well to give, you know, out of $10 billion in the innovation. Malcolm Turnbull, seriously, you spent $10 billion and out of that you gave $8 million to incubators and accelerators. And when I asked Indie Bio, what's the reason you won't come to Australia? They said, where's the money for the innovators at the bottom? And, you know, you're running a four-month project. You have the R&D tax incentive scheme that's, that gives you back 40% of your money, but that takes a year and a half to get. Your business can build and bust in four months. Yeah. It's not quick enough. And giving money to investors, that's not going to solve the problem. No. You know what? If you can create a good enough product, I can guarantee you they will have no problems attracting investors. And by giving all these tax breaks to them, that's, that's not creating an innovation boom, an innovation nation. What you do is you support the people at the bottom. Yeah. People like you and me. Like really, you just make sure they can feed themselves. That's all you have to do, right? And feed them clothes and house themselves and you will have no problems. And say, don't, you don't have to get a job. Just do the cool projects that you're doing anyway. That's how you do it. Vote science, buddy. <laughs> um, if you're interested in supporting Bionascent and, and following what we're about, we have a Facebook page and a website, bionascent.co. There's also a, a Facebook page, is Bionascent. If you're interested in investing or running a pilot project, please, please get in contact with us. We're very interested. We plan and keep an eye out for Indie Bio Demo Day. It looks like it will be the first week to second week of july and that's where we'll be showing off our milk because it will be made by then so where will that be san francisco but you can view it online there'll be a youtube channel if you go to indiebio.co or indie.bio if you search for indie bio go to san francisco and keep an eye out on their page you'll be able to find when demo day is coming and that's when all of the projects there are going to be announced which is going to be absolutely fantastic and very exciting projects that are going to literally change the world so once you've made all the proteins that you want to make to for Bionascent to make the milk formula be the best it can be, who are you going to sell it to? Who's going to mass produce it and sell it to the world? So at the moment, we're in talks to get distribution and manufacture. That would probably be done in Australia. Our main target market would be China, of course. That's China would be our target market. A Chinese trust is built in Australia. They know we have a very good track record for breath, for infant formula. We lead the world in it. We would establish trust here before breaking into the Chinese market. And we would hopefully be selling commercially in Australia. So you guys might be the first ones to be able to sample it. We've already had a lot of people contact us saying, oh, we're pregnant or we, we know someone that is and we're really excited about it because we're worried that if we can't breastfeed, we want to make sure our baby has the best possible thing. And I think that just on that note as well, this is a really unique product because we're using GMO bacteria to make proteins that are technically not GMO. The proteins that come out are not, but it's a really good way to engage the public with why GMOs are important. And if it's just a GMO apple that doesn't brown at your supermarket, it doesn't have the same connotations as giving your baby the best possible start in life. And this is a way to start having meaningful, educated conversations about GMOs that needs to happen and how they can help us in the world. So is colostrum too complex to be included in this sort of synthesis? Ideally, what we're looking at is the most important proteins to begin with. Down the track, we would have a variety of infant formulas, the most important of which would be ultimately for neonates. 
babies that were born prematurely and things like this. And really we we would diversify into a range of different things. The complexity isn't a problem as much as is the funding. If there's enough funding, I believe we could make any type of baby formula that's in demand. It just takes funding and time. And a way you can reduce time is by putting more money into it. What we would target in the beginning is where we're targeting zero to six months. It's where we can make the biggest difference. But eventually, we would we would love to be able to make really full, complete milks. Look at tailoring them to each type of stage of development, but also to different times of the day. A mother's milk changes protein contents and all these things, and it is really adaptable to to the baby. So, and then the milk towards the end of the breastfeed is different to the milk at the start of the breastfeed. Any ways we can emulate all these things to make it as close as possible to what an infant would get if they were breastfeeding, we will eventually be going into. At the start, we're starting with individual proteins because we need to be able to demonstrate that we can produce a product. And when we get that confidence, investor money will come as well, hopefully. I don't think we have any worries with that. So, <laughs> Well, Meow Ludo, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Ian. That was regular friend of diffusion, Meow Ludo, Meow Meow, talking about Bionascent. Find out more at Bionascent.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check out the Patreon page on patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Write and tell me what sort of supporter awards you'd like me to put on the Patreon page. And a special thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his monthly donation. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR on the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. 
knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>